of British history, the story of royals is the story of men. The crown, after all, was supposed to pass from father to son. Second sons, or spares, were important in case anything happened to the first son. Wives and daughters? Well, wives were there to bear and raise the sons. Daughters were useful as pawns in international diplomacy and often the means to enlarging a territory or a fortune. It's tempting, therefore, to think of mothers and grandmothers as simply a supporting caste. They're to bear, nurture, and encourage sons and support their husbands. But these women were often power brokers on their own, eager to shape and able to influence history. This month, during which we celebrate Mother's Day here in the U.S., we'll be celebrating mothers and grandmothers on the podcast. Of course, we will commemorate the tragic execution of Anne Boleyn this month considering how important May 19th was to both Anne and Elizabeth. We'll also look at the other mothers, as well as grandmothers, before and after Anne Boleyn. It's often said, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And in royal history, that is often so true. Hi, I'm one of those people who, when Prince Harry and Meghan Markle announced their wedding date, immediately thought, why would you want to get married on the anniversary of Anne Boleyn's execution? That's what May 19th means to us in Anne Boleyn fandom. That and one more thing, at least to me, the 19th of May is also the date Anne's daughter, Elizabeth, was released from the tower. It couldn't have been a coincidence that Mary Tudor, daughter of Catherine of Aragon, enemy of Anne Boleyn, and suspicious of her half-sister, would have chosen to have guards appear at Elizabeth's door on the anniversary of her mother's execution. So how did the two women come to share that fateful day at the Tower of London? Let's take a look at how they both arrived there, why one was destined to remain at the tower and the other was able to leave. And finally, the ultimate destination of them both. Anne Boleyn comes in glory to the Tower of London. Just three years before those horrifying days in 1536, Anne Boleyn had come to the tower to stay in the royal apartments before her coronation. Henry VIII had overhauled the royal apartments to provide an appropriate lodging for his beloved wife, who was visibly pregnant with the child he hoped would secure the future of the Tudor dynasty. After years of working toward this moment, Anne had her triumph at last. She had faced down a popular queen, a powerful pope, a powerful emperor, the anger of the English people, and Henry's own doubts over a period of more than six long years. She was no royal princess, and she had built her own support system with the help of a politically astute family. She had made the most of her upbringing in the magnificent courts of Margaret of Austria and Francis I of France to capture the heart of the English king. She had refused to become his mistress until she had a commitment of marriage. She was Marquess of Pembroke and about to become Queen of England. 
1533 coronation celebrations would last four days and include a triumphal arrival at the Tower of London. An elaborate water pageant was staged to carry her from Westminster to the Tower with 50 great barges and numerous smaller vessels, all decked out in their finery, processing up the River Thames. There are marvelous descriptions of these in Eric Ives's groundbreaking biography of Anne and in Alice Hunt's spectacular discussion of Tudor coronations. I'll put links to both of these works, along with Anne Somerset's pivotal biography of Elizabeth I, in the show notes. Once she arrived at the Tower, Anne was greeted by heralds, great officers of state, and finally by the king himself. Anne would stay in the reconstructed royal apartments, a reminder to us that the Tower was a royal residence as well as a prison. The Queen's apartments, now gone, were located in the innermost ward of the Tower, between the White Tower and the main curtain wall. As part of the coronation, Knights of the Bath were created, and there were lavish ceremonies and feasts. Then, on the 31st of May, Anne processed from the Tower to Westminster for her coronation. In all, Ives estimates that up to 300 people processed behind Anne, a visual reinforcement of support for the king and his new queen. As Anne left the Tower in glory, no one could have imagined the events that would bring her back just three years later. Anne Boleyn returns to the Tower. What caused Anne Boleyn's stunning fall from favor and journey from being the king's beloved wife to becoming the first executed queen in English history? Let's just start by saying historians don't agree. So I'm looking at years of research and basing my views of events on a few core beliefs. First, that Anne Boleyn was not guilty of the sexual promiscuity and rampant infidelity she was charged with. Even after nearly 500 years, it's easy to dismiss most of the charges based on historic records of the time. As queen, Anne's whereabouts were recorded, and she wasn't in the places she was accused of being. Accusing a woman of sexual misbehavior particularly of instigating illicit sex, was one of the greatest tools men had to discredit women. Second, there were men, including Thomas Cromwell, that knew they would benefit from Anne's removal from power. Third, that the very spirit and strength that had drawn the king to Anne, her ability to speak up when challenged and to stand up to men, initially intoxicated Henry VIII and eventually repelled him. Anne herself admitted she was not as humble as she should have been as queen. In fact, she called Henry out on his betrayals and mistakes. Not appropriate queenly behavior when the king is Henry VIII. Anne should have known better. And fourth, speaking of knowing better, Anne had a disastrously incriminating conversation with Sir Henry Norris on April 29th. She accused him of delaying his marriage because he wished to marry her. Quote, you look for dead men's shoes, for if aught came to the king but good, you would look to have me. The conversation shattered the bounds of courtly love and then some, breaking all bounds of propriety for the game of love language Anne had learned so well in her years abroad. The queen became 
angry and the conversation deteriorated into a huge argument. Anne was apparently too angry to notice an audience had gathered. By the time she realized how reckless her speech was, it was too late. She tried to make amends by having Norris go to her almoner and swearing she was a good woman. This is probably also the cause of another public quarrel Anne had that week with the king himself. Several years later, Scottish theologian Alexander Ailes wrote to Queen Elizabeth I and described how he had seen Anne plead with the king, carrying the young Elizabeth in her arms. Ailes described how the king was angry, but able to conceal his anger. However, despite Anne's attempts to make amends, these mistakes would prove her undoing. At the joust of the 1st of May, 1536, although Anne was officially queen, she must have sensed something was wrong. As it turned out, Mark Smeaton had been arrested and accused of adultery with the queen, possibly through torture and certainly through intimidation of a young and powerless and weak man, Smeaton was forced to confess. The king got word during the joust and left abruptly, taking Henry Norris with him. Norris was not just a close companion of the king. He was groom of the stool. That meant he was with the king in his most intimate moments and that he knew the king's body and its possible failings more accurately than anyone except the king's wife. I believe Henry VIII was terrified of what Anne and Norris might know and be sharing about him and his masculine failings. After all, Henry's desperation about not producing a son and his growing focus on his growing codpiece display some concerns about how others viewed his virility. If two people who knew him best ever betrayed him, his entire world would crumble. I think that's why the king took Norris with him and spent the journey trying to persuade Norris to confess in exchange for a reprieve. The king needed Norris to be on his side. And yet, despite that furious argument with the queen, Norris defended her. As Henry saw it, Norris chose Anne's side. I think that's what tipped the king into his worst fears and paranoia. And Cromwell took it from there. Within three days, the queen, along with Norris, George Boleyn, William Brereton, and Francis Weston were all arrested. All but Anne and George were tried by the 12th of May and found guilty. Anne's royal household was broken up and a French swordsman was requested all before her trial. Her marriage to the king was declared void on the 14th of May, erasing Elizabeth's claim to the throne. The next day, she and her brother George were tried and found guilty of treason. On the 17th of May, less than three weeks after that May Day joust, George Boleyn, Henry Norris, Francis Weston, William Brereton, and Mark Smeaton were executed on Tower Hill. Anne believed she would be executed on the 18th, but her execution was delayed. Two reasons are sometimes given, the need to clear the Tower of Visitors and the delayed arrival of the French executioner. Why had the king gone to the trouble of bringing in the French swordsman for this execution? He claimed it was out of mercy, but since he was beheading his wife, that rings a bit hollow to me. I think it was to avoid the possibility of a messy execution. After all, even a slight hesitation on the part of the executioner could result in multiple blows needed to remove Anne's head. She was the first queen of England and the first woman to be beheaded at the tower. 
it was likely the executioner might have second thoughts or hesitations. The French swordsman was a good solution. The French style was less messy, more reliable, and over more quickly. So on the 19th of May, 1536, Anne left the Queen's lodgings in the tower for the last time. She had worried she would be put into a dungeon when she'd arrived on the 2nd of May. She was not, but the royal apartments must have been little comfort as she watched her life unravel. That morning, she walked past the Great Hall and through Cold Harbor Gate, the remains of which can still be seen today. When she passed along the west side of the White Tower, she saw the scaffold. There were familiar faces among the crowd. Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, Henry Fitzroy, until recently her stepson, and Thomas Cromwell, who had built his success on Anne's relationship with the king, and who would come to his own violent end four years later. Anne's speech on the scaffold followed the tradition of prisoners at the time, think of those who remain. For Elizabeth's sake, Anne chose her words carefully, not criticizing the king or her fate. Echoing her brother's speech before his execution two days before, she began, quote, Good Christian people, I have not come here to preach a sermon. I have come here to die. She went on to praise the king, quote, I pray God save the king and send him long to reign over you. For a gentler nor a more merciful prince there never was. And to me, he was ever a good, a gentle and sovereign lord. She did make one clear request, quote, and if any person will meddle of my cause, I require them to judge the best. Then she ended, quote, thus I take my leave of the world and of you all, and I heartily desire you all to pray for me. Her mantle was removed, her hair tucked tightly into a cap, her eyes blindfolded. She did not kneel over a block as her brothers and the others had done. For the French method, she knelt upright, repeating, To Christ I commend my soul. A single stroke and it was over. Anne's body was placed in a makeshift coffin, by legend a narrow case, and buried in the chapel of St. Peter ad Vincula near her brother. Six years later, she would be joined there by Catherine Howard, the second wife of Henry VIII to be beheaded at the tower. When Anne came to the tower in May of 1536, she would never leave. That certainly must have haunted Anne's daughter when she arrived at the tower in March 1554. Elizabeth is imprisoned in the tower. Elizabeth had entered London in July 1553 alongside her sister Mary to celebrate the putting down of the attempt to put Jane Grey on the throne. But within months, the lifetime of bitterness Mary felt for Anne Boleyn and her daughter was exacerbated by the question of religion. As Mary worked to restore her nation to Catholicism, her reform-minded sister rankled. Simon Reynard, the very Catholic ambassador of Charles V, thought Elizabeth a clear threat and encouraged Mary to move against her. But Elizabeth managed to assuage her sister and make vague efforts to study and adopt Catholicism for herself. Even so, Mary was committed to establishing herself as the undoubted heir to the throne. She had her first parliament pass an act invalidating Henry VIII's divorce from Catherine of Aragon. If Henry and Catherine had not been divorced, Mary was, was legitimate 
and Elizabeth was not. Based on that, Mary confided to Reynard that it would be against her conscience to allow the crown to pass to an illegitimate heir. Meanwhile, Mary moved forward in her plans to follow the advice of Reynard and Charles V to marry Charles' son, Philip of Spain. Parliament objected, and on the 16th of November, 1553, issued a formal request that the Queen marry an Englishman. Mary angrily rejected the petition. January 1554 brought the so-called Wyatt Rebellion, a series of planned uprisings across the country protesting Mary's marriage to the Spanish prince. The goal was to replace Mary with Elizabeth on the throne. It's not clear how much Elizabeth may have been involved in the rebellion, but it's likely she was at least aware of the rebels' intentions. In response, Mary ordered Elizabeth to London. Despite Elizabeth's protest she was too ill to travel, the Queen insisted. When Elizabeth arrived in London, she was taken to Whitehall and held in isolation. Wyatt was arrested and interrogated, but no evidence was found against Elizabeth. Still, the Queen believed her half-sister was guilty, and on the 18th of March, sent Elizabeth to the Tower. Elizabeth is described as playing that moment of her arrival at the Tower to its fullest effect, sitting down on the steps, and when encouraged to come in out of the rain, replying, It is better sitting here than in a worse place declaring herself to be the truest subject in the land, she entered the tower. Elizabeth was sent to the royal apartments at the tower, the same ones her mother had used nearly 20 years before. Imagine Elizabeth, enemy of the queen and her Catholic supporters, spending weeks in the very chambers her mother had stayed in before she walked through the tower to her death on the scaffold. As happy as she was to have Elizabeth in the tower, Mary had to admit there was no real evidence against her. Wyatt had done his part to clear Elizabeth. On the scaffold, facing death and eternal judgment, Wyatt maintained that Elizabeth was innocent of any involvement in the plot. In a time when words spoken in the moments before death were assumed to be utterly honest, Wyatt's words carried a great deal of weight. After Wyatt's execution on the 11th of April, Elizabeth was held more loosely at the tower, allowed to exercise and move about a bit more freely. Even so, it was clear Mary couldn't hold her prisoner in there forever. Mary decided Elizabeth should be held more quietly under house arrest with a dependable supporter. She selected Sir Henry Bedingfield, who arrived at the tower with soldiers. Elizabeth saw the arrival of armed men and assumed the worst. Then, on the 19th of May, the soldiers knocked at Elizabeth's door. She would have known the date, of course. She would have known how her half-sister hated her mother and how she would love to have Elizabeth follow in Anne's footsteps to the executioner. After all, Lady Jane Grey had recently been beheaded, even though Mary had been sympathetic toward her. But instead, Elizabeth was taken from the tower on the 19th of May, 1554. Guarded by Bedingfield's men, Elizabeth set off for Woodstock. As she exited the tower, she must have been comforted by the people who came out in support. Along the way to Woodstock, people of all ages came to cheer for the princess and throw cakes and flowers and herbs into her litter. People called out, God save your grace, as she passed by. 
Whatever Mary believed about Elizabeth's legitimacy and right to the throne, it was clear the people were on Elizabeth's side. Although she was eventually released from Woodstock, Elizabeth continued under suspicion. Mary eagerly married Philip of Spain, which threatened to lessen her popularity. The queen believed she was pregnant in 1555, and Philip encouraged Mary to bring her sister to Hampton Court Palace to witness the birth. This suited Mary as well, as the child would displace Elizabeth in the succession. The queen kept Elizabeth in her quarters, granting only a limited audience. As the pregnancy went on, Mary's tension grew as there was no sign of her going into labor. After a rumor that the queen had given birth to a son on the April on the 30th of April proved false, time just dragged on. Finally in August, Mary had to admit there would not be a baby. Her sadness was compounded when Philip left England. With Philip gone, Mary despaired. She couldn't replace Elizabeth as the heir without her husband. Philip eventually returned, but only briefly. For her part, Elizabeth stayed as much as possible at Hatfield. In the early months of 1558, Reynard wrote that Elizabeth was recognized as next in line for the throne and that the recognition meant that Parliament was unlikely to replace her as Mary's heir. Mary had been desperate to have anyone succeed her but Elizabeth, but her chances of changing the succession were evaporating. When the queen became ill in the summer of 1558, she might have believed she was pregnant, but no one else did. Elizabeth recognized that courtiers were coming to cultivate her goodwill as her sister's reign was coming to an end. On the 17th of November, 1558, Mary I died. Word came to Elizabeth at Hatfield. According to legend, she sank to her knees and quoted the scripture in Psalms, This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. After spending most of her life considered illegitimate, having been disinherited by her father, her half-brother, and her half-sister, the three monarchs who preceded her, Elizabeth was now Queen of England. Elizabeth returns to the Tower. On the 12th of January, 1559, Elizabeth journeyed once more to the Tower of London. As her mother had before her coronation, Elizabeth traveled to the Tower in a grand water procession. Her royal barge was decked out as befitting a queen, and she was accompanied by the Lord Mayor, other leading citizens, and guild members. As she entered the tower, the new queen must have thought about her previous time at the tower, where she had sat and refused to go further. Now she processed in glory to the royal apartments, where she sat under a canopy of state and was treated with all the deference she could imagine. After spending two days being celebrated and honored at the tower, Elizabeth left for her procession to Westminster. According to Sir John Hayward, Elizabeth remarked, quote, Some have fallen from being princes in this land to prisoners in this place. I am raised from being a prisoner in this place to a prince in this land. Others suggest slightly different wording, but it's a sentiment she must have felt, leaving in glory as she passed the chapel where her mother had been buried without dis- without ceremony and in disgrace. Elizabeth left the tower and was crowned at Westminster Abbey on the 15th of January. Her mother appeared in the coronation um, celebration. A series of pageants were enacted for the queen, including one at Gracechurch Street that displayed Elizabeth's heritage. On the first level, Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. On the next level, Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. 
and finally Queen Elizabeth herself, the daughter of completely English parents, a slight to Mary, and the rightful Queen of England. Mother and daughter at the Tower. Both Anne Boleyn and Queen Elizabeth spent the 19th of May at the Tower of London. For Anne Boleyn in 1536, it was the day her life ended. For Elizabeth in 1554, it was the day she left and gained another chance, eventually rising, as she herself said, from prisoner in the Tower to Queen of the Land. Elizabeth kept several personal items with her mother's falcon emblem, and she wore a ring that had her mother's image, so she kept her mother close. And she shared this day with her mother. I think that the day she left the Tower, Elizabeth began her journey toward becoming the queen her mother would have wished her to be. Thank you for joining me to look at Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I on May the 19th at the Tower. We have one more week in May and one more famous grandmother and granddaughter to meet, Bess of Hardwick and our Bella Stewart. Can't wait. Thank you for joining us for this discussion of mothers and grandmothers of British royal history. I hope you are enjoying your mom and grandma this month. Please take a moment to subscribe, like, rate, and share the podcast with a friend. Thank you, thank you. And I'd love to hear from you. Let's keep shaking up history together. Thank you.